spoke encouraging words to these people. So that's kind of a theme that Luke is uh, no doubt wanting us to be aware of, to think about. Unfortunately, um, Luke kind of omits what type of words of encouragement there are. Like, what, what was Paul saying to them in this context? So we don't really know, and that's what I want to do in just a moment. I want to I kind of delve into what, what possibly, what potentially was Paul speaking. And, and fortunately, we can actually kind of fill in those blanks, and here's why. Uh, because of the areas and where Paul was at, he actually wrote letters to these churches. So that same word actually gets picked up in some of these, uh, what we would call epistles, letters, um, to these other small churches, and we'll look at some of those. Um, but I want to just take a look at it, highlight a couple things. So next slide, just kind of look at a couple things uh, with regard to the text. Uh, so great, let's pause on this for a second. I want to show you a little map, because um, we like maps here. Graphics, like I, I like maps and graphics, and they're helpful for me. Uh, because frankly, um, these first few verses, I read them literally like 10 times through um, originally when I was studying this, and it made absolutely no sense to me. I kept read, reading it over and over and over again. I'm getting confused. I'm like, where in the world is Achaia? And what's Macedonia? And where's Berea? And who is Sopater? And Gaius? Again, these are big, these are words that most of us, like, we just read through and then we, like, we tune out. It's like, like, it's like watching a bad movie, right? You see their mouths moving, but, but you have no idea what's being stated or communicated. Uh, and so... Uh, that may have been exactly what you did with me. So I want to, I want to, my, my job is to try to do the best that I can to break stuff down for you so you can understand it. So my hope is that at least um, you would, at, you know, understand to some degree what, what's happening here. And then uh, you, can, you can do that what you wish. So um, let's, let's take a look at this real quick. So I numbered this for, for us. It was for me. Like, like I needed this. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm a visual person. I understand things through pictures. Like, pop-up books are my favorite. If there's a pop-up Bible, uh, that's what I'd be teaching from right now. I think it's why I like the Bible Project stuff so much. It's like visual. And so uh, here we go. Uh, number one is where this whole thing starts. So that's Ephesus. That's what chapter 19 was all about. Number one, that's where this big riot took place. Paul's actually going to end up in Ephesus, but I don't want to confuse you, so we'll just focus on number one, chapter 19. Uh, number two, if you go up to the upper left-hand corner, you see Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica, however you want to describe it. So it's a seaport city. Paul went up there by way of ship to that particular region. And then number uh, three, it says, I don't know, I think it's like verse two or verse three. It says, then Paul uh, went down to the region of Achaia, or some of your Bible translations might actually say uh, Greece. Does anybody's translation say Greece? Okay, who, who says Achaia? Does anybody say Achaia? Nobody says Achaia. Okay, I'm just making this stuff up as I go. So anyways, uh, the region of Achaia or Greece, it's kind of the same area. Um, most scholars believe that Paul would have been within the city of Corinth. All right, so uh, number three, and we're told that, that Paul stayed there for three months. Um, and then he was going to leave and then go to Syria. So Syria is all the way over to the uh, right-hand side. So you see Syria over there, Antioch. Um, that's where Paul was hoping to go. He finds out about this plot. Um, like the plot thickens, you know, there are people out to kill Paul, Sicarios out to kill Paul. And so Paul uh, then decides to go another route back to the region of Syria. Ultimately, he's going to go back to Jerusalem. But um, that leads to, from number three up to number four, where Paul walks back through the region of Macedonia up to four, Philippi, which is also another port city. So from Philippi, he takes a ship we're actually told how long it took him, what, four or five days or something like that, uh, I think in the passage there. He ends up going back to the port city of Troas. So that's just kind of a, a little bit of a, a depiction of uh, what this first few verses of chapter 20 is kind of unpacking for us and helping us to understand. So, all right, next slide. 
Um, I want to talk a little bit about just some brief things. Number one, we're told that Paul actually said goodbye, and uh, he gives these farewells. This is something that kind of comes up periodically throughout the book of Acts. Um, Paul is having to say goodbye. Uh, the later part of chapter 20, we're going to hear Paul uh, give this uh, pretty sorrow-filled goodbye to these people that he has literally invested his life in. And uh, as, as I was reading this, I just thought, you know, this is something noteworthy and not necessarily to teach an entire message on, but to just think about and consider that, uh, that goodbyes are, are not easy. They are a part of life. And uh, to learn how to grieve well uh, is an important part of your growth as followers of Jesus. Uh, a lot of times we as, as human beings uh, in general... But as Christians in, in particular, as followers of Christ specifically, we don't know how to grieve. Um, a lot of times, especially in our culture, we don't really know how to sorrow when hardships or tragedy or loss comes into our lives. We don't really know what to do with that. So we might, you know, we, we have sort of this, uh, especially for guys, there's this underwriting or underpinning narrative that says, don't cry. You know, boys don't cry. And, and yet, what, what that is basically stating is that don't grieve, don't sorrow, because men don't do that stuff. And I, I'm, I'm not a girl, so I have no idea how women process it. I imagine, I mean, I have three women in my life, uh, my, my wife and my two daughters, that, that is. Um, um, <laughs> some of you are like judging me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me until you hear the whole story. So the point is... Um, I, women are more prone, I think, you know, at least by way of experience, to grieve more and to have more raw emotion. But the fact of the matter is, is uh, I think uh, in general, we don't know how to grieve. So what we try to do is we, you know, uh, stuff our emotions or we binge watch a show on Netflix until it's over because we don't know what to do with this pain, this grief and loss. Um, if, if I can just say by way of suggestion... Um, for you to think about, just something for you to stuff in your heart, to stuff in your mind, to write down in your notebooks, to reflect upon later. One of the most key, in fact, I think there's an entire book in the Bible devoted to helping us grieve. You know what that is? Anybody want to take a guess? Lamentations is one. That's great, because that's actually lament. So you're right, correct, and I actually have another book in mind. Anybody? I couldn't hear. Job? Job, close, good. Psalms, who said Psalms? You guys are right. Good job. Yes, Psalms. Yes, Psalms. Um, it, I, I would suggest, highly suggest, get in a typical uh, pattern of reading the Psalms. Um, many of the Psalms, most of the Psalms are actually laments. They're weeping out to God, saying, God, why has this happened? Lord, why are the wicked prospering? Why is evil prevailing in our day? God, when will you stand up? It's, it's a grieving of something that they once had, but they typically always migrate or move towards um, uh, what I would describe as like an imagination, an imaginative response to God. If this is something that has been taken away from me, that I have lost, that will never be the same, this relationship will never be what it once was, or this situation in my life will never be what it was once before, God, what are the new possibilities that you are birthing into my world now? That's, that's what good... Good grieving will look like. So uh, read Psalms. Like read them. Make them a part of your, not just read them, but meditate upon them. Think about them. Chew on them. Consider them. And then go back over them and keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. They are literally books that help us to know how to grieve. So secondly is I want to think about real briefly, again, just by way of honorable mention, uh, these traveling companions. Now, again, Paul lists uh, 
eight, uh, what's it, two, four, six, seven guys, seven men. We have absolutely, most of us don't really have any clue as to who these guys are. Um, some of these names, we really don't even know at all anything about them. And we know who uh, Timothy is uh, because there's a couple books that are written to him. Uh, the rest of these guys, we really have no clue who they are. Um, so why does Luke drop them into the text? Okay, the best we can assume is that what Luke is basically saying is that um, this is all part of Paul's uh, mission. So I want to look at the next slide. Just, this might make some uh, better uh, information for you to think about. Okay, so I want you to think about the, the, the map. Just in your mind, think about the map. Um, where Paul is actually picking up these guys. Um, these are probably young men. We have no idea how old they are. Maybe like late teens uh, to their 30s. Um, maybe even 40s. Because you know, Who knows, maybe 40 might be still young. But... Um, I'm hoping it's young. But anyways, uh, as we see, like uh, Gaius and Timothy, uh, they came from the region of Lystra and Derby, um, And then this guy, uh, Tychicus and Trophimus, they came from the region of, of uh, uh, Asia, or perhaps that might have been from uh, the region of Ephesus. And then we're told about this guy named Aristarchus and Secundus. They came from Thessalonica. Uh, and then Sopater, he, we're told, that he, Luke tells us, he's like, this is the son of Pyrrhus. Who's that? No idea. But if you, if you were there in the first century and you're reading this, uh, it's very likely that you knew who this guy was. In fact, probably this is some level of wow factor. If you read this, you're like, no way. That's the son of Pyrrhus? That is so cool. Pyrrhus is so awesome. He's such a good dude. Like, like it, I think it was intended for that. For us, we read this 2,000 years later. We have, who's Pyrrhus? I have no idea. Nobody knows. Um, but he's part of God's kingdom. And he was an important guy at one point. And so his son, Sopater, uh, accompanies Paul on this missionary journey. Now, why? Um, I think perhaps why this is actually being mentioned here is if you look at this, these are people. Uh, if, I can, if I can use this without in any way, shape, or form leading to some sense of dehumanization, these are specimens of what God's doing around the world. You understand that? Paul is making his way back to Jerusalem. In fact, we're actually told in the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul is making his rounds through this particular region of the country for a very specific reason. Aside from encouraging them, aside from preaching Jesus, aside from planting churches, Paul is also going around uh, gathering money. And the reason why Paul was gathering money is because the church in Jerusalem, now, now mind you, these were Jewish people, um, and they were suffering. They were suffering under the hand of the oppressive uh, regime and leadership that was there over them. These, they didn't have money. They went through drought. They were suffering. And so here's what Paul is doing. Is he's going around and he's bringing money. So he's going to be able to deliver this money from the Gentile world to the Jewish people. That I've mentioned this before. Early first century Jewish people. This might come as a shock for some of you. If you haven't been around it for any length of time. They were actually racist. They, they loved Jewish people. They completely were suspicious, if not hateful, towards anybody that was non-Jewish. And so God's kingdom was about bringing together both Jew and Gentile together into these kingdoms. Or I would say into, into God's kingdom, into these communities. And so what Paul is doing is insanely strategic. He not only is bringing money from Gentile people saying, Hey guys, back in Jerusalem, you Jewish people that are part of my brotherhood. Here is, you know, who knows, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Guess where it came from? Your enemies that are now your brothers. And Paul is also bringing back, saying, just in case you don't believe me, here's six specimens, here's six Gentile representatives to verify that the kingdom of God is moving forth into what formerly was viewed as 
hostile territory to God. That these people that were once viewed as hostile, hostile, these people that once viewed as your enemies are now your brothers and sisters. I I think that's what Paul's doing. So he's got this little entourage of Gentile converts that are following him all around and um, he's bringing them back with him. So, all right, let's let's jump in now and uh, wrap things up with some uh, words of encouragement that I see that kind of arise from some of these other passages. And I'll just go through these Briefly, and we'll think about them, consider them. Now, first of all, let's take a look at the word encouragement. Like, what in the world does Paul mean by this word? Because he uses it twice. Luke uses it twice. What does he mean by the word uh, encouragement? Um, now, this is actually a Greek word, parakaleo. Uh, it's, two, it's a compound word, two words. Para means alongside, and kaleo means to call. If you're familiar with the word that was described for the word church, the word church is ecclesia. Um, within that word ecclesia is the word call, is the idea of called out ones, people that are called out from a community, people that are called out from a society, people that are called out from whatever, to come to be a part of something. So in just a normal, generic type of a usage of a word, if I were to like call five of you and say, come on up here, I'm calling you right now, calling you out to come down, um, then you would be sort of a unique called out one. Does that make sense? So the word uh, that he's used here, parakaleo, means to, to call to remembrance, to call alongside some truth, some idea, some concept to come into your life. And this is why um, it just kind of plays into the English word for encouragement. Um, so a couple of the usages of this word are like beseech. When was the last time you used the word beseech? All right, if you watch Game of Thrones, maybe they use that. Um, like beseech, I beseech thee. Nobody uses that anymore. That's the point. But the idea of parakaleo means to call, to call to. So we use an English word to exhort um, or to encourage. So it's the idea to speak of something, to say something that would bring you some level of courage to your life, to lift your spirits, to lift your heart, to raise it out of its current state or condition of hurt or sadness or brokenness, or if you are prideful and arrogant, to reduce you from that pridefulness and arrogance to a status of being humble. That's what, that's what encouragement does. So let's see how this word plays into a handful of writings that Paul would have written to these various churches in these regions of Macedonia and Achaia or Greece that Paul would have written to. So let's take a look at them. Number one, we see that we, uh, Paul is going to write 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That the gospel, because that's what Paul's message was. Paul says, everywhere I went, I went preaching the gospel. It tells us that the gospel encourages us uh, in our sorrow, in our trouble. So listen to what Paul writes about this. In first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-4, through four, he says this. Uh, Blessed be the God, or another way of thinking about this, happy. How happy is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of comfort. This is our, our word, comfort. God, in this context... The word encouragement or, uh, that's being used there is used in this English word uh, to comfort, to bring uh, strength to those that are without. So he says that the God of all mercies uh, is the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So I think really what Paul is basically describing here, first and foremost, is that if I were to kind of put this into a question, why would Paul say that there is comfort for us in the midst of hardships and challenges and difficulties and trials and that feeling of oppression or that feeling of weightedness on your soul? And I think what Paul would basically be saying is this, is that the reason why the gospel, the good news, actually offers some level of hope And buoyancy in the midst of you feeling like you're sinking is because we, at the very center of the Christian faith, we serve a God. We serve a master who underwent 
tremendous oppression and crushing destruction and ultimately came out on the other side by way of resurrection, that God raised him who had been crushed for our sins, crushed as a result of our brokenness, and God raised him from the dead, gave him new life. And so what Paul is saying, I think, is that, is that we who associate, we who become loyal to that message, or loyal, I should say, to the God that promotes that message, we become brought into a new narrative, a narrative that basically says, hey, your hardship, your suffering, your pain, your challenge, your difficulty, whatever it is that you're going through today, uh, is not, does not have the final ultimate word over your life. In other words, our suffering, our hardship, God uses in order to somehow bring about some sense of hope. And through that, we become hope-filled people that ultimately then can share how God comforted us in our tragedy to others that may be going through very similar tragedies. So, for example, you can think about people in your life, some of which who have maybe underwent the most horrendous challenges in their life, there's a tendency to really have an affinity or connectedness with them because they've gone through something really similar as you have, and they've come out the other end. And they come out, and when I say that, they come out the other end not embittered and angry and grumpy and hate-filled and frustrated. They've come out the other end actually filled with joy and peace, and life, those are people that are attractive to us. Those are people that we're like, I want to get to know that person. I want to know their story. I want to hear how they have suffered and gone through these things and not come out all embittered on the other end. And what Paul is saying here is that this is the same thing, that that this is the God of encouragement, the God of comfort, who calls us to remembrance, to remember the fact that we serve a God that actually has suffered like us and has come out the other end victorious, when Jesus rose again from the dead, this is, this is always, you know, this is noteworthy of a recognize that when Jesus rises again from the dead, he doesn't come back with a sword in his hand to go crush his enemies. He doesn't come back for the 40 days that he was walking around Galilee with sort of this new story of like, guys, this is like vengeance time. We have power. I've overcome death. Let's go figure out and develop an army to where we can become a militia and overtake those horrendous um, Romans. Jesus comes back and he speaks the word of the gospel, the good news. And he does so by way of love and kindness and compassion. And this is the God that invites us to receive his comfort. He's a God of comfort. Now, if anything you want to walk away, especially if you're going through a challenging or circumstance in your life in this moment, just pause and meditate upon that simple phrase alone, the God of all comfort. Let that be the only four words you take away from today. The God of all comfort. Like meditate on that. Think about that. I don't care. Get a tattoo of that. The idea is don't forget that. This is a God, not just of randomness, a God of uh, fatality or fatalism. This is a God of comfort, a God that actually comes to us in the midst of our difficulties and brings hope. Second thing, uh, we also see as it goes on that in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 we see that the gospel encourages us towards a life rec- of reconciliation. The gospel encourages us towards reconciliation. Listen to how 2 Corinthians 5 says this. Uh, we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. This is from the New Living Translation. I love the way this translation puts it. So he says, we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. Why would Paul make that point? Because how are you and I oftentimes evaluating people? Okay, let's, let's use modern vernacular. How are we sizing each other up? Right? How do we do this? 
We do this from a level of like, I'm up here, you're down there, I'll size you up. And of course, we either come away with two conclusions. One, I'm way better than you because I'm better looking than you, stronger than you, have more money than you, whatever. Whatever our evaluation, then we put them down or we look at them and think, I'm a nobody. And we look at their life and we feel full of despair. We're sizing people up. What Paul is saying here, because of the good news of the gospel, we don't size people up the way the rest of this world does. We don't evaluate other humans from the same point of view. Then he goes on to say, he says, at one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, right? Jesus was in the flesh. We ate dinner with him. We talked to him. Paul never did any of that, of course. And then he says, how differently do we know him now? This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new has begun. Next slide. He goes on and he says, All of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to himself. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal. So that phrase, making his appeal, is actually the exact same word uh, that we translate in other places like encouragement or comfort. It's the same, same word in the Greek. God is making his appeal through us. That we speak for Christ when, he, when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be an offering for our sin. So in short, what I think what Paul is saying here is that the gospel encourages us towards a life of reconciliation. Number one, being reconciled to God. So in other words, if any of you right now, it's just worthwhile to know and state that if any of you, no matter where you're at in your heart or in your life with God, if you would look at your life and someone were to ask you directly, where is your life at with God? Are you friends? Are you acquaintances? Are you far off, distant, you know, friends, kind of like in friend as a Facebook friend? Or do you love him? Are you reconciled to God? Are you connected to God? Do you know the love of God that surpasses knowledge the way that Paul would say that? Is there an experiential knowledge or do you just know him at a distance? Like we would call it an acquaintance. Um, what Paul would say is be reconciled. Be brought back to God. You stand here, sit here in a context of feeling, I actually feel really far from God. I have sin in my life. There's things in my life that I feel ashamed of. I feel distant from God. Um, Paul's word of exhortation, his word of comfort to you would be to return to God. Recognize he's a God that loves you. He's a God that invites you. He's a God that says, be reconciled to me. And receive that invitation. And then Paul would go on to say, but it doesn't end there because that reconciliatory life doesn't just simply have to do with you and God, what we would say maybe on a vertical level, you and God, but it also begins to affect you on a horizontal level. That means that there are people in our lives that God wants to bring healing in those relationships. Because look, like, at the end of the day, when Christians act towards other people the way that everybody acts in this world, when we kind of treat people with this sense of like tit-for-tat mentality, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You unfriend me, I'll unfriend you back. You said something nasty about me, I'm going to say something nasty about you. Uh, you gossip to, about me to some of my friends, I'm going to gossip about you to some of my friends. You, you really, here's, here's the tragedy with that. You're not demonstrating in any way, shape, or form the true life of God that has been shown to you. That's, a, that's really the tragedy. Because we're called to live by God. We've been brought into an entirely different way to not only relate to God, but also to relate to other people. That involves forgiveness. And that involves being able to say, hey, I'm sorry. Humility. 
humbling ourselves. Let me put it this way. In other words, when we don't see people the way that God sees people, we have this tendency to dehumanize them. It's one of the reasons why, like, for example, if you've ever been around and you read something and someone, like, says something to the effect of, like, yeah, you know that girl or that guy or that person. Like, that's what that is. It's a subtle way of basically dehumanizing me. It's stripping the name off of them and just simply replacing that name with a title, that woman, that girl, that dude, that person. Or if you want to get into the race game, that Asian, that white person, that black person, whatever. That is a way of dehumanizing. It's a way of stripping away a person's humanity and simply reducing them to something that you could now uh, attack and destroy. And, and this is part of the problem of, Amer- of, of the world, not just of America, but of the world. We dehumanize people. And what the message of the gospel is that, no, actually, we are all humans that are broken. We've offended God by not loving him rightly, by not loving our neighbor rightly, and yet God, even in the midst of breaking and ruining his good creation, has offered a way of hope and help. So uh, I want to read a passage out of the, uh, C.S. Lewis, who writes this, this is a really powerful passage, so just listen to what he says. He says, it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you may talk, you may one day, uh, sorry, person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. Just pause and think about that. Just think about this. The person you're sitting next to right now, so what C.S. Lewis is saying, that one day when God fully restores and revitalizes and renews all creation, that very person that you are in the outs with or frustrated with or maybe indifferent to, one day by God's power, by God's healing, by God's restorative order, will be so beautiful, if you saw that person now, you would be tempted to fall on your face and worship them. Just think about that. That's powerful. He goes on to say, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else they might become a horror and or a corruption, such as if you now met, uh, you would only meet them in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. We all are immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You have never talked to mere mortal. Isn't that an amazing passage? A lot of times we don't really believe that, do we? It's one of the reasons why I think it's so easy for us to get so offended by others and retaliate with anger and frustration because we just, we just forget that. We all, we all do that. I do that all the time. But... This is Paul's way of reminding us that really in Christ, we don't treat each other according to the flesh because what God is doing is he's restoring all things. And it begins with this act of reconciliation. God reconciles us back to himself. Lastly, I want to finish with this statement. And uh, next slide, he finishes, he says, thirdly, that the gospel actually encourages us to live in a manner that's consistent with God's kingdom. So here's what Paul says. He, again, in this context, the word is actually uh, the word plead, um, or beseech, or encourage, or exhort, however you want to describe it, whatever your translation might say. But again, it's the exact same word that Paul is saying. So again, I envision as Paul is going around encouraging the people in Macedonia, in these regions, um, what was Paul saying? I have no idea because Luke doesn't say, but I would imagine it had something to do with what we just read. Paul is encouraging and exhorting them to Uh, imbibe, to think about, to consider the very things that he's talking about. So Romans chapter 11, uh, the very end of chapter 11 says this, everything comes from him or God and exists by his power and is intended for his glory, all glory to him forever. Amen. It's just the way of kind of reflecting, thinking about 
pausing, meditating. Verse 1 of chapter 12, he says this, so, or in other words, because of this, or therefore, some of your translations might add, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, I encourage you, I strongly exhort you to, with this in mind, with the reality that God is all-powerful, God is the one that gives you breath and life, what you just breathed in right now is a gift from Yahweh, your creator. You may not have recognized it. You may not have even been mindful of that. You may not have even thoughtful of that reality. But that very breath, that very heartbeat that just happened and you didn't even know happened, that brain movement that allowed you to be able to understand what I just said, uh, is all of that is a gift from your creator, God, who loves you. And what Paul is saying is because of this, therefore because of that, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies because all he has done for you. Then he says in verse 2, stop and stop copying the behavior and the customs of this world. So the encouragement from Scripture is always to remind us who you are in God. Uh, another way I would think about this and put it this way, why would Paul say this? I think Paul is basically saying this because, because you belong to God and because you're not an orphan, you're not alone in this world, stop living like you're an orphan. If you're a follower of Jesus, if God has restored you, in other words, your life, which was once lost and aimless and purposefulness and just simply meandering through this world and trying to figure out who am I? Where do I belong? What's in store for my life, my future? And you go through life trying to figure this out. <laughs> it's just, okay, it was a stupid analogy. I don't know why... My confession, uh, watch Zoolander 2 last night, right? Sorry. <laughs> Hansel goes out, and he's like, who am I? Right? That is, by definition, I think, I think themes like that play into the broader culture at large. We are stuck on this repeated question, who am I? And here's what the gospel says. If you trust this God who made you, created you, redeemed you, loved you, washed you, cleansed you, you are his son and or daughter. This is who you are. You can, you can stop this endless pursuit of trying to decide, trying to determine, tr stop, stop trying to spend so much money trying to form and fashion and shape an identity and instead receive the identity of washed, cleansed, forgiven, given a future, given a hope, given place in God's eternal kingdom, not only one day in the future when Jesus comes back again, but today, right here, right now, because God loves you to receive that. It's always an invitation. So in closing, what I want to do is I want to read a couple passages because one final thing, and I'll have the worship team come on up, and uh, I want to do something kind of different today uh, that kind of plays into what we've been talking about. So uh, in Romans chapter 12, I don't think I have these up here, but just... Do I have them? Oh, I do have them. Cool. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. Paul says this, Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts in one body, and we all belong to each other. So he's making this analogy between the body of Christ, uh, this thing that we call the church, and a human physical body. Um, he says, if in his grace, God has given us different gifts of doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy or to speak, speak out as much as God has given you faith. Uh, verse 7, he says, if you have the gift of serving others, serve them well. If you have the gift of teaching, then teach well. Verse 8, he says, if your gift is encouragement. In other words, this is the word that we just read. If it's to encourage, then be encouraging. Use that gift to encourage others. He says, if it's giving, give generously. Some of you have a unique gift of giving. 
Um, and then he goes on to say, if it's leadership and leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have the gift of showing kindness, do so with others gladly. So oftentimes we're asking the question, where in the context, where do we do this? Well, I would say, first of all, I mean, it begins here. Like as we gather, I know sometimes people wonder like on a Sunday morning, there's this one guy teaching and there's a band up there playing. There's no place to fit in, to set in. You know, look, the fact of the matter is there are lots of places to serve God, even in a larger gathering like this. I mentioned earlier our small groups. There's one unique way where you can constantly, regularly practice exactly what Paul is saying here. But again, that doesn't mean that Sunday can't also be that place. I mean, I, I think of it this way. Like, how cool would it be? Like, I, I dream of these things sometimes. Like, um, how cool would it be, like, if every Sunday, if there are people that are like, I love to bake, I love to cook, I love to make food, if every Sunday people were like, I'm going to just bring food for everybody to eat. Like, I mean, some of us, that might feel overwhelming. Like, what? How can one or two? No, I'm saying, look, if a lot of people that are like, I love baking, I love using a gift, and on Sundays they gather as a large group, they just come and they bring a spread of food for anybody to eat. It's like, it's there. See, oftentimes people tend to look at the church. They're like, well, the church is responsible for providing donuts. <laughs> really? Why? Why? Where is that written? Like, why, why, why is that the case? I mean, we don't have money in the first place. But the point of the matter is, is like, look, at the end of the day, if we see ourselves as a collective community and we say we are in this together, we're all going to pitch in together, we're going to serve together to help one another, to give, to speak. And that leads to the final thing I just want to say is this, is that the idea where he says, those that have this gift of encouraging, to encourage well. Next, next slide, I'll finish with this. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Uh, I think I have it up there, maybe, maybe not. Nope, I'll just read it. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. Paul says this, when you meet together, uh, one will sing, one will teach, uh, some will tell the special revelation. God has given everything uh, that is to be done to strengthen all. In other words, to encourage, to build up all. And then, he says, so that they might be encouraged. So the idea is that as we come together, there, there will be those that have a word of encouragement. So here's what I want to do. We're going to sing. We're going to respond. That's why we sing. It's a way of responding to the gospel. So worship team can come on up right now. Um, as a way of responding to the gospel. Um, that's why we take communion. It's a way of remembering the fact that we serve a God that is not far off or distant or uh, reluctant to engage with us. But he's a God that comes and he makes himself vulnerable as vulnerable as a loaf of bread to be broken so that we can feast and be fed and be given life. That's the God that we serve. But, uh, so we come and we respond that way. But we also uh, want to do something today by way of responding in the context of today's gathering in light of what we just thought about and heard about with regard to encouragement. And I'm just going to say this. As we sing, especially the first song, if there's a word of encouragement that God has put on your heart for you, you church family, you church people that love Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside you, uh, we would love to give space to share what that word of encouragement is.